I'm just kidding. First Peter chapter five. I want to read uh, the first three verses, which is what we taught through the past couple of weeks, but it'll give us a little bit of context. So raise your hand if you need a Bible. Go ahead and uh, ask my I'll get that to you. But mainly we're going to be looking at verse four and then I'll pray and then we'll get to work looking at what God has to speak to us here today. So first uh, Peter chapter five, verses one through four, it says this, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker of the glory that is going to be revealed. And he speaks to these elders, these leaders, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly. As God would have you, not with shameful gain or for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but as examples of the flock. And verse 4 is what we're going to really focus on. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. And this is the word of the Lord. I want to pray, and then let's just get to work. Jesus, we commit our time, our hearts, our minds, our imaginations, just wherever we're at, whether we feel strong and good or feel fragile and weak and we need help, God, wherever we're at, just across the spectrum, um, God, give us strength, give us help in our moments of need. Uh, we look to you as our King, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Why you all grab a seat? Uh, I want to start just with a real quick <clears throat> reminder in some ways. Um, Similar riffing upon what we looked at last week, but uh, going a little bit further in depth in terms of what our, some of our greatest needs are. But, but in, in, in difficult times of need, we need a hope more than anything. But hope, not just a random uh, hope that is just empty words, but a hope that actually anchors us, uh, tethers us to both the past, uh, the present, and the future. Um, in much of our world today, so when we go through tough times, we want something that's just going to make our day, meaning our present, feel better, right? So we, it's one of the reasons why I, I think, you know, it's, it's convenient for us to um, self-medicate because that gives us, in the present, an ability to kind of escape the challenges that we face. Some of us have wishful thinking of a hope in the future, like maybe one day life will get better. One day things will kind of make a turn towards the better. Or you, you know, play the lottery and it's like one day I'll strike, get rich, and I'll get really, you know, wealthy and I'll be able to have all these abilities and these means to overcome challenges and hardships. And it's very common even in our culture today, I would even add, uh, to look at the past uh, with a very critical view. Uh, to look at the past as being somehow just a waste uh, or a dump or something of regret or something to be ashamed of. But the interesting thing about Christian hope, uh, the hope that's anchored in Jesus, is it's a hope that's actually uh, weighted by the past, impacts the present, but also is anchored in the future. All three simultaneously. And this seems to be exactly what Peter's uh, bringing the people into. Number one, the idea of the past. Again, he doesn't mention anything about the past in this particular text, but the entire book that we've been reading up to this point, he's been anchoring everything in the past. We've been saying this all along, just been, if you've been with us for any length of time, you'll hear it again. Hopefully you don't get tired of it, but the point of the matter is this is a letter written to a group of Christians that are trying to be faithful to God in the midst of a culture that's very hostile towards them. So as a result of that, they are facing these constant challenges of, of do we either compromise our faith? Do we just kind of like lessen up on our witness and our testimony of being followers of Jesus? Do we just kind of go underground? Do we just become, you know, secretive? Do we play ninja roles where we just, nobody really knows who we really are? Do we downplay our testimony? And his whole advice is don't do that. 
don't be ashamed of the testimony of the gospel. God's not ashamed of you. He loves you. He's with you. He's for you. Uh, but at the same time, yeah, you may face hostilities, just like, as he keeps reminding them, just like Jesus faced hostilities. But nonetheless, again, as it was for Jesus, so will it be for you. So in other words, if Jesus faced hostilities and you face hostilities, Jesus also faced death followed by resurrection. So you will also face potentially death followed by resurrection. So what he keeps reminding them over and over again is that your life is anchored or tethered to Jesus. Don't ever miss that. So for example, he starts out the entire letter just with verse verses 1 through 2. And I'll just read it real quick. You can just listen. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 1. He says, To those who are elect exiles of the dispersions. This is his audience to whom he's writing to. And again, this kind of carries over to us. I've said this before. Like the, Even though this book was originally written to the dispersed exiles, uh, we are eavesdropping. And that's okay. It's okay. There's some things that are really illegal. If you eavesdrop, you go to go to jail and it's not good. Uh, and then there's other things like we can eavesdrop like a letter in the Bible and be like, yes, we can learn and glean uh, encouragement from it. So it's okay to eavesdrop here. Um, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion, according to the knowledge of God, the Father, and then he goes on to say, in the sanctification of the Spirit, in other words, in other words being devoted to Jesus uh, by way of the Spirit, and in obedience to Christ uh, for the sprinkling of his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. So I think the big idea that he's conveying here is that both God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, all three are collaboratively working in order to strengthen you, to help you. All three. We Again, Christians are, are distinctly Trinitarian. And so what we mean, we don't believe in three gods, we believe in one God, but one God that has uh, described or unveiled or revealed himself as three unique agents working for us, three unique persons, if you would, that are all one God in harmony with himself, but in a collaborative effort to help and strengthen us. So this is this big idea that I think is trying to convey is that we first and foremost need to recognize that our story is a story that's connected to a Trinitarian God that with all of the energy of his being is for you. He's for you. He's not against you. He's not out to destroy you. He's not out to crush you. He is for you. So to the degree I think we imbibe that truth, it gives us strength and energy or to the degree in which we're shaky in our theological understandings in terms of those underpinnings, then our lives will take upon a shakiness, a vulnerability, or desperate nature. And this is what I think Peter's trying to say is that, look, you don't have to live in a place where there's just continual earth-shaking reality. You can actually tether yourself, anchor yourself into the past of a God that is working for you in history. But then it moves into sort of the present. And this is where he begins to describe to us the present ways in which God is demonstrating his grace and kindness and goodness for us. This gets back into the actual passage that we just read in verse 4. So again, I'll read it to you again just so it's fresh in your mind. And when the chief shepherd appears, 
you will receive an unfading crown of glory. And again, just real quick by way of context, I think it's important just to keep this in mind again, because we're not, we're not, we're not making stuff up. We're just trying to anchor our understanding of who God is based upon what he's already written. So what we know so far in the passage here is that again, human beings, we need encouragement, especially in times where things are challenging or hard. But one of the ways in which God does that is he creates agents. He appoints agents to do that. In this context here, in the actual story that we've been reading, verse uh, chapter 5, he describes that there's a group of agents he describes as, as overseers or shepherds, or we would call them pastors. And the job of these people is to basically communicate, bring people back to the story of who God is and how he's working for them. So that's the big idea of what pastor's job is. And again, if you were not here last week, I would just recommend check out the message on our website or on our podcast. Uh, That might be helpful for you. But the big idea that he's trying to say is that, that as this gets tough and as we find ourselves in moments of challenge and hardship, to be able to anchor our souls to this ancient story, how do we do that? Well, we can do that by reading the Bible on our own. That's great. And it's important. I think it's good to have a regular cadence of habits and practices in your life that continually bring the message of God, the gospel before you on a regular basis. But it's also something that is important to note that God also appoints leaders to be able to do that on a regular basis, that their faithfulness to reiterating, re-instructing in the way of the gospel is what helps us to keep going forward. You know, so again, the idea of continually feeding ourselves, one of the reasons why we say people frequently, like, like, don't treat church attendance the way we oftentimes treat New Year's uh, resolutions to get fit. Where at some point, kind of, we start out, we're really good for like maybe three weeks in a row. Then after that, the cadence kind of moves to more like once every four weeks we go to the gym. Then after that, it's like once every six weeks. Before you know it, by the time you get to June, you're like, you're barely lifting a 15-pound dumbbell. It's just like, man, I'm going to get really, really healthy. Trust me, you will not get really, really healthy. And the idea is that in this life, we need encouragement. And one of the ways in which God crafts encouragement to continually being fed to us is by being a part of the community of God's people. We would call that gathering to church, going to small groups, getting involved, getting connected to people's lives where the gospel is being preached on a regular basis. So as he's saying that this is getting communicated, one of the things that's going to happen is that the entire community is going to need to be continually reminded, where is our present help? And this is where he comes into verse 4 again. Again, the chief shepherd, when he appears, he will re- you will receive an unfading crown of glory. Because even leaders can get tired and restless and find themselves in vulnerable states, just like all the people. And this is where we continually, re- we need all of us, the reminder that God is with us. And this is where he makes the point, the goodness of the shepherd. So listen, the big idea that I want for us to think about. It's going to basically lay out for us three ways in which God is not only for us in the present, but also in the future. And all of this, I would add, is is good. This is really good news. It's God demonstrating, God flexing his goodness to us in unique ways that we need more than ever. So number one, let's take a look at the idea of the goodness of the shepherd. This is a very present moment in our lives. So he describes himself as, or Jesus as the shepherd, the the good shepherd. The word that he actually uses there is the word chief shepherd. In some of your translations, you might have a different little bit of a nuance there of a translation. Um, but literally, the word is arche poimon. Um, literally, the idea of arche, we get the word architect or chief or leader. Um, but the idea there is the chief 
Um, and then poimon, we actually get the word from that, the word poem, poimon. So chief orchestrated. So what is a poem? A poem is a, is a, is a calculated attempt to take words and to not just randomly scramble words together, but as words are kind of crafted together, it creates something beautiful. So the big idea here is something that's beautiful. So the chief shepherd is one that takes a whole host of life's challenges and rearranges them from random chaos scramble to some form of order. That's what a chief shepherd does. If you want to think of it another way, he moves his sheep from a state of chaos into a place of order. That's what a shepherd does. A shepherd's aim or shepherd's job is to remove any forms of threats that could be hazardous to the life of the sheep and the flourishing of sheep, uh, but then also to help tend to the wounds and the needs and the circumstances of the sheep so that they can then ultimately be uh, flourishing and reproductive and multiply and so on and so forth. That's God's aim in our, of our lives, currently, presently. What I love about this is where else will you go that you can find in our culture right now, in our world right now, that you will find something, someone, some agent, some institution that is so deeply committed to the flourishing of your soul. Where else will you find that? Big tech? Is meta? Is that their, like, mission statement? The flourishing of all humanity. Is that what Amazon's aim for your life is? I want to see you flourish. Is that what Trader Joe's aim in its business model is? I want to see you just become the best, highest version of yourself ever. Is that the aim of, you know, soul cycle? I mean, look, at the end of the day, this is the mission statement of the chief shepherd. To create a world so that your life has aim and purpose and community and relationship and flourishing. And as a result of that, when you are in that state, you become productive and you become somebody that, that, that is able to work and love other people. In other words, we create a culture and society, not by way of our own strength and energy, but by way of the Holy Spirit that's alive and creating strength within a community of people that are in relationship and walking in an affinity with himself and his own aims. And this is exactly what a chief shepherd does. Listen to some of the ways in which this plays out. So 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 25. Again, this is something that Peter uh, describes a little bit earlier, but keeping the motif or the analogy of shepherd slash sheep. This is a common uh, metaphor throughout the Bible where uh, God oftentimes uh, likened himself to like a shepherd. Again, this is an ancient agrarian culture. This uh, may be in America today. We, If God were to show up right now, he'd probably choose another metaphor, but this metaphor fit way back then, so it's helpful for us to think about you know, sheep and shepherds and whatnot and how important and significant that was. But the big idea here is he's saying that I, I'm a shepherd to my people. And they are in need of some form of guidance because that's really what a shepherd does. He helps guide others that might be easily misguided as a, as a culture, as a question for us. Are we as a culture easily misguided? All the time. Are we as a culture always solely the ones making decisions on ourselves? We like to think that we are. But how often, realistically, are our opinions and our own self-observations or our own desires being played out really more so manipulated by the advertisements that are popping up 
and by the continual like algorithms that are like wiring certain news feeds to your social media stream so that that's shaping you, the type of person you are, the type of emotions that you feel, the type of rage you fight for, uh, the types of desires that you want to live out. I mean, it's crazy. You can like type in something and then all of a sudden now you get all these pop-up ads for that. What is that? That is literally the system at work trying to shape you. So we're not as in control of our lives as we like to think that we truly are. But this is where the goodness of a good shepherd comes in. He says, I will help you. I will strengthen you. So in the present, no matter what type of struggle or hardships or challenges we find ourselves facing, God says, I will always, always, always be with you. So listen to how this plays out. Peter says this, you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and the overseer over your, over your souls. In fact, by the way, the word overseer here uh, to describe Jesus is the exact same word that he uses overseer, just uh, what we studied last week to describe pastors. So the role is kind of synonymous across the board. Obviously, as an under shepherd, my job is not in any way on par with Jesus, of course. I'm an under shepherd, under the chief shepherd. And then here's another one from Isaiah chapter 40. Again, the Old Testament's filled with language and vocabulary to describe this motif of God as a shepherd and human beings, the people of Israel as sheep. Uh, verse uh, 11 of cha- Isaiah chapter 40, famous chapter, says, Yahweh will feed his sheep like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arm. And he will carry them in his bosom. And he shall gently lead those that are with young. So I just want you to pause real quick and think about this imagery of Yahweh God the almighty king over all the cosmos. I'm reading a book right now, Quantum Physics Mechanics, and it's mind-blowing. And I'm not that smart, so some of you are like, whoa, that's incredible, that's impressive. Don't be that impressed because I don't understand most of it. But the point of the matter is, it's interesting to me nonetheless. The point that I would make is just even studying the thought of these things is absolutely, it's flooring me to realize that behind all of this, there's a cosmic mover and shaker. He has a name. He doesn't just have a name, he actually has a body. And we see that in Jesus. He comes and he takes upon shape. Yahweh, God, takes upon shape. That this cosmic mover and shaker is not just some sort of disembodied presence or force that's abstract, that's careless, that's carefree, that's out there. But he actually is a father, shepherd, who cares about you and the hardships and challenges that you find yourself right in the midst of. Like a shepherd. Carrying a sheep in his bosom. Just think about the imagery of that. Yahweh God. Think about the tenderness of that. Holding a sheep close to his, his chest. Sheep are really cute. I can't imagine that'd be that difficult, especially if it's a tiny little lamb. Big sheep, I don't know. But the point that I would make is this. This is the imagery that God chooses to disclose of himself to you and I. Ezekiel chapter 37 verse 24 says, David, my servant, shall be like a king over them, and they shall have one shepherd, and they shall also walk in my judgments and observe my statutes and do them. So now what we see here is a little bit of a shift that God says, I'm, as a shepherd, I'm going to kind of replicate myself. I'm going to assign my shepherdly role into agents that will do it rightly. So in this context, he, he envisions David becoming one that is going to rightly shepherd. Now, David had lots of flaws. Again, we talked about this a little bit last week. David is not the guy that, like, I'm going to follow David's example. Do not follow David's example. He is not intended to be an example to follow. But his greater son, Jesus, is an example if you want someone to follow follow Jesus. But the point that I would make is this, is that this image of God carrying on this idea of 
having shepherd, shepherds like him shepherd his people uh, gets takes up some degree of shape in the life of David. Now, ultimately, we see this kind of go somewhere in the life of Jesus. So John chapter 10, verse 11, Jesus himself describes himself by these words. He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So Jesus himself says, I'm the embodiment of the one who is good, Yahweh. All that God has intended, all that God has done, all that God has stepped into in the past, but also in the present, that this is the God that is alive and working in this moment right now to do what God desires to do, which is to help us. Think about that. Think about that. Next, I want to take a look at the second thing, which is the idea of the goodness. And I would even add the severity of his appearance. So again, listen to the passage. It says, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive an unfading crown of glory. So this kind of moves now into the word appears. What does it mean for the good shepherd to appear? Well, this is what we commonly describe as the second coming of Jesus. Again, there's lots of different terminology and names and labels that can oftentimes be ascribed to this. But the big idea is that Jesus, as Peter's writing this, he's with the Father right now. Again, if you follow the storyline of Jesus, he ascends to the Father, which means he is no longer on this planet as a human being that we would know. But which, again, this this might sound as absolute crazy talk in a culture that today that just seems to value just material materialism. But the point of the matter is this is a story that we as Christians believe. We shouldn't have to shy away from it. We shouldn't have to feel uh, sad in terms of like articulating that or embarrassed as a result of that. Because at the very end of the day, what a Christian is, is we believe in miracles. We believe that God defied death by allowing death to do to him what it does to all of us. But Jesus rose again from the dead, came beyond the grave, and conquered it. So we believe, really at its very core, Christianity is about a miracle. God reversing death. And this is what we see right here. Is that one day, Jesus will come back. What he describes is in terms of this word, he will appear. And when that happens, we don't know when that will happen. We don't know when that will take place. It obviously has not happened yet. But someday, will. And what will happen when that happens? Well, Jesus actually had some things to say about this. I'm going to just read it. I want you to listen to it. So on the one hand, there's goodness fixed to this. In other words, those that love his appearing, those that look to Jesus and are like, I love Jesus. I want my life to be shaped like Jesus. My loyalty is to Jesus. And I live in a world where there's just chaos and craziness and hardship and pushback and anger and rage and violence and all injustice, all of this stuff. But one day I trust and have confidence that one day the king will return. I'm actually watching the Lord of the Rings trilogy right now. And I'm like, just started the Two Towers yesterday. And it is so good. I think, honestly, it sounds, I'm almost even embarrassed to say this. But for the very first time, it's actually really, really, really making sense to me. I've watched it like three times before. I'm like, this th- this fourth time around, I'm like, oh my gosh, I didn't catch that the second time or the third time. And now it sounds amazing. I'm, oh, it's so good right now. I can't wait till after church to just keep going with it. But the point of the matter is, it's just... so I'm going to get done quickly so I can get home to keep watching it. Anyways, where are my loyalties? But the point that I would make is this, is that the idea of the reappearing of this king to do for this world what we so longingly and desperately long for and what all of our other political entities and affiliations and agencies and institutions are trying to create some form or degree of utopia in this world. In other words, to somehow just mask 
evil and death and brokenness to just make everything good without really dealing with the evil and the brokenness in this world. You cannot bring healing and wholeness, but only Jesus can because what Jesus does is he deals with death, evil, and destruction to the fullest by allowing it to do to him what it does. But he overcomes that, rises again from the dead, and says, one of these days I will come back and I will make it all new. As surely as the waters cover the earth, so will my glory cover all creation. This is the hope that Christians have. Here's what Jesus has to say. I'll read it to you, and then we'll move on to the last one, and we're done. Matthew 25, verses 31 through 36. He says this. When he, uh, the Son of Man, Jesus himself, when he finally appears, blazing in glory, and all the angels with him, the Son of Man will take his place on his glorious throne. This is king language, by the way. Then all the nations will be arranged before him, and he will sort out all the people, much as a shepherd sorts out sheep from goats, putting sheep to his right and goats to his left. Then the king will say to those that are on his right, enter, you who are blessed of my father. Take what's coming to you in this kingdom. It's been ready for you since the world's foundation. Here's why. And he goes on to say, I was hungry. You fed me. I was thirsty. You gave me drink. I was homeless. You gave me a room. I was shivering and cold. And you gave me clothes. I was sick. And you stopped and visited. I was in prison. You came to me. And he goes on to say in the exchange of dialogue, the people are going to say, well, when did we see this? And he's going to come back and give his answer. But the whole point that he's making here is that one of these days, this king will return. And he will sort out all things. And, and I say there's a severity to this because there are those in our world right now that are not loyal to the desires of Jesus. This is one of the severe things. We don't like to talk about this because it doesn't always make us feel good. Or sometimes it can lead to weird skewing where I would say that Christians oftentimes kind of get the sort of high horse mentality of like, well, we're part of the cool people. We're part of the in people. We're the saved ones. They're not saved. And it creates this weird dichotomy of we're in, they're evil out. That's not the heart of God either. And sometimes that distortion leads to other forms of distortions where like, let's just not talk about this type of stuff because it makes us uncomfortable. And I would say, really, it's about getting back to really what Jesus has to say and doing the best we can to try to make sense of it. The point is, we live in a world, all of us would admit and acknowledge this. I don't care whether or not you're a Christian or you're not a Christian. We all acknowledge the fact there are things in this world right now that are good. There are also other things that are, that are evil. We don't always agree upon what those evils are, nor do we always agree upon what the source or the reasons for those evils are exist. But the story of the Christian gospel and the message is that we have a God that created all things. This is really the telos of all things, that God created all things for an aim, an agenda, a purpose, really to bring him glory. And so that as it brings to him glory, then he shines glory and goodness and beauty upon it. And it's this self-regenerative, beautiful world that's filled with goodness and truth in beauty. But right now, obviously, we live in a world that does not always reflect that. There's a lot of evil, a lot of brokenness, a lot of pain, a lot of violence, a lot of sorrow, a lot of anxiety. And we carry it. We deal with it. That's what we broker with, you know, Sunday through Sunday. That's where maybe your life is at right now. Maybe it's dealing with tsunami waves of grief and pain and hardship and trying to make sense of it all. But the claim of the Christian message is that God sees all this as a shepherd sees these threats and seeks to do something about this and has promised 
to do something about this. And this kind of leads us into that future hope that he says, one of these is, I will appear as a king and I will sort it all out. I will separate that which is loyal and devoted to my aims, my kingdom building purposes that bring good and justice and righteousness in this world to separate that from those that are not devoted, that, that are not interested. And again, this is not necessarily a, a God, uh, how would I even describe it? This is, this is an image of God trying to just set the world right, recognizing it's in the midst of a lot of evil that's bent away from his intention. That is what we would describe as evil or wickedness or brokenness. So his whole point is that I will one day deal with all of this and separate it and make it right. And this then leads to the very last thing I'm done. And then he describes the goodness of his reward. Again, let me read to you the entire passage just so it all makes sense in the major context. He says, and when the chief shepherd appears, chief shepherd brings order. He will one day come again. You will receive an unfading crown of glory. An unfading crown of glory. First of all, the word unfading is just uh, actually the only time in the entire Bible it appears here. You will not find this word anywhere else. It basically just means this idea of self-regeneration. Something that just has baked into it. Something that just keeps renewing over and over and over again. In some ways, actually, as I was reading this, I think this is kind of like the way that God created the earth. I was watching a stupid instagram video yesterday this guy talking about seed he's like take the seed out of a lemon and it was actually it was not stupid it was actually kind of informative and i'm probably going to end up doing exactly what the guy said because i thought it was interesting but nonetheless it was just, you know stupid it was a stupid time waste waster but the point matters is he takes a seed out of a lemon and then uh creates the opportunity for this thing to then sprout and then he plants it in a little pot and it begins to grow and i thought that beautiful that's genius and again it's easy for us in our culture in our world today to think like well where do you get lemons from oh you get lemons from either farmer's market or from trader joe's and that's it like we never even think about like going into a garden and like planting it i mean there's a couple of you that live up in center market that do that and that's kind of like your whole gig and that's cool we need you but the point that i would make is this is at the end of the day this is the world that got created it is a self-regenerative world it's a gift that keeps on giving over and over and over again. So baked into very creation itself are these like images of self-creation, self-regeneration. It's beautiful. And God says, this is what's going to happen. That reward that will come upon you will be a compounded over and over in self-regenerating, unfading reward that will keep going. It will never end. Never stop. We would use the words in your translation. We might say eternal. That's fine. But again, what does eternal mean? We don't even really know how to define the word eternal. I like the word self-regenerative. It just keeps giving over and over and over again. But then he goes on to describe this word crown of glory. So exactly what is a crown of glory? Um, the word, the idea of a crown is something that was kind of very connected to uh, ancient, uh, not only a, a Greco-Roman world, uh, the idea of like the crown of an emperor or the wreath that would have been won by someone that, that won the Olympics, whatever. Um, but the idea, it was, it was a bestowal of honor and glory upon someone. And what I want to do right now is in terms of closing, I want for us just to think about some really creative ways I think C.S. Lewis offers to consider the idea of what is he really talking about with regard to the, 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 the crown of glory. Um, I have my book. I mentioned this last week. This is my like little version of the way to glory here, and I've read this a lot of time. And these are every time I reread it, I like underline it and highlight it, and over and over again until the pages kind of wear out. But it's so good. If you do not own a copy of the way to glory, I would highly recommend just 
buying it. Um, you can buy them like on eBay for like a buck. They're super cheap. Like, or just go to a used bookstore and find one. Worthy investment. And just really the first chapter, the way of glory. It's called the way of glory. It's, it's worth reading. And I want to read just a handful of passages out of this, and I'm going to make some comments along the way. I'm going to be finished. Okay, so here we go. I got five minutes, and I'm done. Listen. He starts off with this little segment right here in terms of trying to understand, like, what is the weight of glory? He says, the sense that in this universe we are treated as strangers with a longing to be acknowledged, to meet with some response, to bridge some chasm that yawns between us and reality is a part of the inconsolable secret. And surely from this point of view, the promise of glory becomes highly relevant to our deepest desire. So he's going to kind of play around with the big question, like, what exactly is the crown of glory and the weight of glory that... that all New Testament writers seem to indicate. He seems to identify the fact that there's a psychological need in every single one of us. We have a need. What he describes as an inconsolable secret. Each one of you and me have a secret. There is a longing inside of one of us. Every one of us. A longing to be identified. A longing to be seen. A longing to be known. It's one of the reasons why if you go to a church and you're like, I don't really, I don't really know anybody here. No one seems to really know me. Based upon that criteria alone. We can make decisions to say, I'm not going to go to this church ever again. Seems kind of odd, but it plays deeply into the psychological makeup of who we are as human beings. We need, it might sound kind of weird, we need to be seen. Now, again, that gets distorted through this thing. I don't know if a couple of you might have heard of it. It's called TikTok um, or social media where we need, and it just becomes this distortion where it's all about self. That's a weird, odd distortion, a need to be seen. But there's a, there's a, a, a general need. That's a, that's a good need to be seen that should be cultivated. But the question is, how do we do that without it becoming this distorted monster that caves in on itself. It's all about um, egotism and all about idolatry of self and so on. So he goes on to say, for glory means, he's going to begin to give some uh, description of it. For glory means good report with God, acceptance by God, response, acknowledgement, and welcome in the heart of things. The door in which we have been knocking all of our lives will open at last. In the end, that face, which is the delight or the terror of the universe, must be turned upon us. Again, you get images of Matthew chapter 25, what I just read here. That, that face, God will stand before, before all human beings. All human beings will stand before this God. Why? He, he's the author. You might not acknowledge him as author. That's fine. But that doesn't erase the fact that he is the author. He created you. You, you bear his image. Whether you like it or not, whether you're in defiance of him or not, whether or not the church has wronged you or not, whether or not there was a Christian that bared the name of Jesus that did not live uprightly to the name of Jesus, we will all at some point stand before the author, the king over all things. And it says, in the end, that face, which is the delight or the terror of the universe, must be turned upon us, either with the expression that is conferring glory or uh, inexpressible and or the expression of inflicting shame, which can never be cured or Disguised. To please God, to be a real ingredient in divine happiness, to be loved of God, not merely pitied, but delighted in, as an artist delights in his work, or a father in his son. All of this seems impossible, a weight or a burden of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain, but so it is. The point that I think he's making is pretty obvious, is that 
all human beings that bear his image, every single one of us in this room, every single person in San Luis Obispo, every single person on the Central Coast, we all bear the image of every homeless person you saw living out in some homeless encampment around that might be easily to just be overlooked. All of them bear the image of God and are valuable to him. All of us as human beings will either stand before God and be overwhelmingly blown away by the kindness and goodness that he bestows upon us. It can only be described as a weight of glory. Or there will be met with a a sense of despair and shame. As human beings, we know today what shame does to human beings or regret or guilt. We know that. We, We can psychologically analyze it. We know that sometimes it could lead to very unhealthy psychological responses and actions and activity and behaviors. We know the effects of it. Can you imagine compounding that beyond so that, so that the one opinion in the entire universe that matters above and beyond any other opinion says, this is not what I intended for your life to be. Imagine the weight of that. We would say this idea of Fame could be this weight of despair or shame. And in closing, he goes on to say, uh, it may be possible for us to think too much of our own potential glory in the afterlife. However, it is possible, it is impossible to often or too deeply to talk about the potential glory of our neighbor. Uh, The load or the weight or the burden of my neighbor's glory should be laid daily on my back, a load so heavy that only humility can carry it. And the backs of the proud will be broken. It is a serious thing, he goes on to say. It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods or goddesses. To remember, and again, his idea of gods or goddesses are, are, are images that we would look at and be like, that's a god, that's a, that's a, that's a powerful being. We, we might even describe it as like, that's a hero that has a hero-like status. He's saying, can you imagine? We live in a society right now. We just simply look at each other, and all you and I are seeing right now are each of us in our seed form, our seed shape. Pocket of seeds, packet of seeds. Looking at seeds is vastly different. It's like looking at an acorn, like a handful of acorns. That's different than looking at a forest of sequoias. I don't know if sequoias come from acorns, but you get the idea. <laughs> vastly different. Right now, we just look at each other in seed form. One day, what he's saying is that we all have within us this potential of something that's so beyond glory and goodness or a terror. And so what are going to say? It is, it may be possible for us to think too much of our own potential. I'm going to wrap up with this little section. He says, the load of the weight of burden upon my neighbor's glory should be upon my back. So load that only humility can carry and the backs of the proud will be broken. It's a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods or goddesses to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, would strongly be tempted to worship or horror or corruption such that you meet, if at all, in only a nightmare. All day long, we are in some degree helping each other to one or other of these destinations. It is the light, it is in light of these overwhelming possibilities. It is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all of our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all plays, all politics. And he goes on to say, there are no ordinary people. You have never 
talk to a mere mortal. They are immortal horrors or immortal everlasting splendors. And in closing, the thought that I want for us to be left with in connection to the passage that Peter says, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive a crown of glory. If you're a Christian here this morning, we could read that and be like, it's amazing, look what my future is. And that's good. Enjoy that. But don't lose sight of the fact that there's a other side to this. That people amidst us, among us, in our lives, in our families, people whom we love, people who have had real-life hurt, challenges, hardships, or have compromised or fallen away from this grace or kindness or this goodness of God are living currently, presently in a state of shame or guilt or regret. That it's Jesus' aim to rescue, to love, to bring into his redeeming grace all. And we have an agency to play, to be part of that act of grace in this world. So my hope, wherever we're at, whether or not we are people that have experienced God's grace or are right now, presently, not really sure what we even think about God or know people, that we would just recognize that apart from God's power, all of us live in this place of brokenness. But God loves us, and we have a hope. So in the midst of our challenges and hardships, this hope and this encouragement involves not only the past of what Jesus did, not only the present that the king slash shepherd is always with us, and a future that one day this king will come again in glory, and we will find ourselves tethered to that story in the end. But we all stand. I want to pray over us right now as we scatter and then dismiss us. Before we uh, pray, I want to just invite you into uh, just three super quick, simple calls of action. Number one, we immediately afterwards, we have our volunteer um, orientation. Again, it's right afterwards. It's like 30 minutes, 28 minutes or so. Just being able to kind of hear ways to get involved. If you're not able to get involved today, that's fine. Or go to that today. Fill out that little thing right there and either turn it into one of the donation boxes or drop it off at the little uh, table that's out there. Secondly, prayer. If you have any needs at all for anything going on in your life right now, we want to pray for you. We'll have some leaders at the very front immediately afterwards. I'll be up at the front. We'd love to pray with you. We'd love to just spend a moment or two just praying over you in ways that you have need. And then lastly, just the practice of generosity. Again, as was mentioned earlier so well, if there are any ways you would like to get involved, we are totally a crowdsourced church. It's just, it, it means the world to us. It allows us to be able to do what we do. Again, no obligation. It's just something for you to consider, to pray about, think about. And I'll pray over us right now as we scatter. So Jesus, right now, we thank you for your goodness, your love, your kindness, that God, you are for us. You're not against us. You're like a chief shepherd who wants to help us and protect us from evils and difficulties and hardships and challenges that oftentimes would just destroy our souls. Uh, God, we thank you that even in the midst of our challenges in our lives, that there are moments that you don't rescue us from hardships, but you promise to be with us in the midst of those hardships as a good shepherd. So, God, as we scatter right now, we pray that you would help us, strengthen us by your Holy Spirit's power. God, that everywhere we go, that we would just see ourselves as these little outposts, our lives, of what it looks like to be in alignment and devoted to you and your ways. So empower each one of us, God, to live the strength and the life that you give us. And we pray and ask all these things in Jesus' name. We all said, amen.
And may the grace, mercy, and the peace from the triune God be yours. God bless you guys. Have a great week. See you.